Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Last time in Tudor England, we explored all the avenues for a woman of business to make a living, and found out what might happen if we talk too much in public. After all that toiling and public dunking, you must be hungry. Let's get ready to enjoy a meal. Grab a pewter spoon and get ready to dance like no one's watching. Let's go traveling. But before we can sit down and enjoy a meal in Tudor England, we ladies are going to have to make it. Prepping meals is a huge part of a Tudor woman's work, and we take a lot of pride in it. If you can't cook or provide enough for all the members of your household, it can reflect very badly on you indeed. It's almost akin to breaking your marriage vows. Our friend Gervais Markham explains in his book The English Housewife. To speak then of the outward and active knowledges which belong to our English housewife, I hold the first and most principal to be a perfect skill and knowledge in cookery, together with all the secrets belonging to the same, because it is a duty really belonging to a woman. And she that is utterly ignorant therein may not by the laws of strict justice challenge the freedom of marriage, because indeed she can then but perform half her vow, for she may love and obey but she cannot serve and keep him with the true duty which is ever expected. Your cooking skills can become a matter of public dispute. Take this anecdote, which comes from a series of letters written in 1545 by members of the Johnson family. Their live-in apprentice, one Master Pratt, stirs up some drama when he writes home to his mama, complaining that the food Lady Sabine Johnson served up was bad and there was never enough of it. His mother promptly wrote to the head of the Johnson family in outrage, and he wrote to Sabine asking what the deal was. She wrote him back. If three meals a day and four in summer be not sufficient, I would his mother had him, that she might feed him every hour. I will have my house all say with me that he had his breakfast, his dinner, and his supper all well eaten. You tell him, Sabine. She even sent some bread with her letter, instructing her husband to give it to Pratt's meddling mom as proof of her skills. Mr. Johnson, knowing a bad idea when he saw it, chose not to pass the loaf along. As a rule, we'll be enjoying three meals a day, breakfast, dinner, and supper. Breakfast isn't likely to appear on the table until mid-morning, after we've done some of our chores, and it isn't likely to be a huge spread. Dinner, what we would call lunch, will be the biggest meal of the day. It's also the most likely to be served hot and offers the most variety. Supper will be our last meal, served around five before it gets properly dark. Most of us are eating the same two things at every meal, bread and pottage. Pottage is basically an all-purpose porridge. Consistency-wise, think of it as ye old time risotto. All you need to whip up a pot is some grain, any grain really, and some cooking liquid. It can be as simple as oats and water, maybe with some milk and butter tossed in. It will probably feature herbs too, though likely not many spices. 
Most of those come from outside of England and are very expensive. We do have recipes for pottage that include things like wine, saffron, almonds, and cinnamon. But you best believe that particular pottage will only show up at fancy tables. Pottage is a staple because it's so filling, which means a little can go a long way, and it's endlessly adaptable. Its flavor profile will change week by week, depending on what's in season at the time. Chuck in some cream and berries and you've got a dessert. Add in a few veggies and, if you're lucky, some fresh meat and you've got a hearty supper. It has the added benefit of being easy to make. Chuck the ingredients into a cauldron over the fire and go about your chores, stirring it every now and then. Wealthy or not, it's a dish that people at all levels of society enjoy. The women who are likely to work the hardest in the kitchen are not the poorest or the wealthiest, but those ladies in between, the ones who want to appear genteel but can't afford more than a servant or two to help them. Meals in Tudor times aren't just about feeding our families and staff. They're often about making an impression. If you are an ambitious member of the gentry, say, or an up-and-coming merchant, whining and dining your business associates and influential neighbors is one of the surest ways to charm them. Ambitious Tudor women are cooking several courses and making sure to turn out a good table setting so that guests will only have good things to say. When it comes to planning the menu, it's important to understand how we Tudors view food. Eating well is a pillar of healthfulness. How you eat and what order you eat your foods in matters quite a lot. To understand the thinking here, we need to return to that whole thing about our humors. We all have a different balance of the four humors in our bodies, which make us more or less hot or cold, dry or wet. Food, too, is considered to have its own humoral characteristics. To eat healthfully, you need to know both how hot your stomach is, that oven that heats and breaks down our food, and what kind of humor balance we're working with. A field hand who does a lot of physical labor runs hot, and so he can and should eat different foods than someone who sits at his desk and deals with paperwork all day. That laborer might like to drink some ale with supper, as it's cooling, while someone enjoying a cooling salad might like to balance things out by drinking some heating wine. It gets a lot more complicated when you consider that how a food is cooked changes its properties. A poached apple is a totally different ballgame than a raw one, and that what types of foods we might eat should change depending on the time of day and what we've been up to. This is carb counting taken to an almost indecipherable level. What we eat can impact everything from our complexion to our organs, so to serve a proper meal, we tutor ladies need to offer thoughtful variety. We also need to serve them in a certain order, so we can layer them in the oven of our stomachs just right. Lucky for us, tonight we won't be doing the cooking. We're heading over to our prosperous neighbor's house for a special supper. meals in Tudor England are a ritualized affair, especially dinner and supper. In the wealthiest households, six officers and a team of waiters are needed just to prep the table in the hall. Most people's dinners are less grand than all that, but it's still a ceremonial occasion. And everything, from what tableware we use to how we set our tables, has meaning. There are many nuggets of wisdom and pieces of etiquette we need to know how to feast right. 
One thing you should know right away is that eating is a communal undertaking, not an individualized affair. The head of the household, his workers and staff, and his guests will all eat at long tables in the same room. The most important people will sit at the high table, which is often raised up on a dais. If we were at a modern-day wedding, this would be the bridal table. They'll face the rest of the guests, who are sitting on either side of tables set at right angles from theirs. As the era goes on, we see less of this great hall dining and more private, intimate affairs around a single table. But one thing stays constant. Where exactly we sit depends on our station, so you better wait for a servant to guide you. Choose a seat at random at your peril. Here's a handy tutor tip. The further away from the high table you've been sat, the less important you are considered. Who sits where is known to cause offense and embarrassment, so a tutor hostess has to consider the seating chart with excruciating care. Now that we're seated, let's have a look at the table setting. Our plates are a mega-status symbol, the idea being to have enough of it for people to use at table and to display food on our side table. If we can't afford silver, and most of us won't be able to, we might go for pewter or even some green glazed pottery. But in many households, what we're most likely to see is something that's been around since the Middle Ages. It's called a trencher. This is a square piece of bread, or sometimes a wooden bowl, that's meant to serve as a plate of sorts. No matter what it's made of, this will be a kind of way station for your food as you move it from communal plates into any choice sauces and then up to your mouth. More on that in a minute. You'll also likely see a linen napkin. Though, don't be alarmed if you happen to see people wiping their mouths on the long cloth running along your side of the table. This is called a surnap, and it's basically a shared napkin. Later in the century, these will start to go out of fashion, so just look to your neighbors to see what's being done. There may be a few other special items near you, and if you see them, you can know that you're a favorite. One is the salt cellar. The closer you are to the salt, the more important you are likely considered. You might also have a drinking vessel, which might even come with its own little cover to keep out flies. But don't expect a goblet full of water. You won't be drinking any. As unboiled, it will probably do unfortunate things to your intestines. That urine pitcher of water you see on the table is for hand washing, which we will be doing before the meal and between each course. At some tables, we also won't have a wine vessel for our own personal use. Nope, we'll be sharing that too. You'll have to signal to the nearby server, and he will bring the communal wine glass over. Just take a big gulp and hand it back. No slow sipping and savoring throughout the meal. Ah, well. I hope you brought your own utensils, specifically a knife and spoon, because you won't find any next to your trencher. There's a reason a silver spoon is given as a christening gift. They're often left to people in wills and very coveted. If that's too rich for your blood, you might bring a spoon made out of pewter or horn. Just make sure you bring something or no soup for you. We'll start seeing forks later in the century, meant for nibbling on candied fruits and such, but you'll never see them used at table. Your fingers are your fork, so get used to it. What kinds of foods should we be looking forward to? It turns out that some of this is dictated by law. Henry VIII's sumptuary laws that govern what types of clothes we're allowed to wear also talk about food. They specify how many dishes someone can serve at a meal. A cardinal, for example, can have nine dishes, but a marquis can only have seven. Knights of the garden, six, and so on down the social ladder. 
If you're entertaining someone of higher rank, you can serve however many dishes he's allowed. And we're going to serve as many dishes as we can get away with, because a point of pride for a Tudor housewife is to serve more food than her guests can possibly eat. When a Tudor talks about a dish, they're not talking about one plate of food. They mean an entire roasted swan. As a rule, our meal will move through various courses in an order you'll be quite familiar with. We'll start with soup, then move on to boiled meat, then roasted meat. Then will come roasted veggies, pies and fritters, tarts and custards, fruit, nuts, and cheese. Though, of course, we're talking about a meal with the upper crust here. What we're about to consume is not for the everyday farmer's wife. One household management author gives us a glimpse into what a menu for one of these special suppers might look like. I warn you, it involves a shocking quantity of meat. He suggests we serve up a shield of brawn, aka the skin of a boar filled with jellied meat, yummy, as well as meat pies, a boiled capon, some boiled beef, followed by many roasted animals, beef, calf tongue, pig, goose, swan, turkey, venison, he goes on, but yikes. Much like the ancient Romans before them, Tudors love animals stuffed into other animals, then made to look like another beast entirely. A pig's stomach, for example, might be stuffed with some other kind of meat, roasted, and covered with blanched almonds so that it looks like a hedgehog. And then there's a cockatrice, which we can make by sewing the hind section of a pig onto the front half of a capon, creating a thing of Frankensteinian nightmares. For most tutors, meat is a bit of a luxury, made of pure blood humor. Anyone in need of strength, pregnant women, say, or men about to go into battle, want to eat as much of it as possible. Maybe that's why it makes up some 80% of the food eaten at Henry VIII's court. Most of us can't afford to eat fresh meat often, but it's certainly something we'll want to serve up for trying to impress. On top of all this, our menu writer says, we will add a whole bunch of side dishes. Veggies are considered a poorer person's food, generally speaking, but they still make it onto fine tables, and more and more as the century goes on. Some of the ones you're likely to find are cabbage, beans, pumpkins, parsnips, peas, and carrots. If you're looking for a food to inspire your love interest's ardor, one cookbook of the age suggests the middle-of-a-globe artichoke might inspire bodily lust. By the end of the period, we will also have both white and sweet potato. Tomatoes, too, though the food experts will remain a bit suspicious about whether or not the thing is good for us. You shouldn't expect too many types of fruit. England's growing season is short, and most fruit can't survive a long sea journey in this period. It's quite a luxury, generally speaking, but that will start to change as we get into Elizabeth I's era, when we see a lot more international trade. Seeds are brought in for new, exciting fruits like apricots. By the way, the Tudor housewife will be responsible for preserving a huge amount of fresh produce she buys and grows, everything from herbs to meat to fruit and flower petals. Gervais Markham says she has to know not just when to plant and harvest them, but also during which moon phase to pick them. In terms of fresh greens, we'll be eating something like a salad, called a salad, though it usually features preserved and cooked bits of greens as well. 
Some salads are purely decorative, so don't just pluck one up from the closest plate. Gervais Markham suggests we take some carrots of all different colors, well-boiled, and carve them into birds and knots or wild beasts, finishing them off with a bit of salt and vinegar. We'll also have fricassees, also called calcachoses. These are a variety of dishes united by the fact that they're made in frying pans. We're talking fritters, omelets, and savory pancakes. At the end of all this, our menu writer suggests we trot out some devised paste, otherwise known as dessert. Don't get too excited, though, because you may not be sampling all of these delicacies. Everyone is likely to get pottage, for example, but not everyone will get to enjoy the roasted meat. If you do, but it's boiled instead of roasted, that says something about your place in the scheme of things. When we think of Tudor meals, we get this image of greyhounds panting under a communal table and people gnawing on great legs of glistening meat. The truth is that both of these things are considered rude in this era, and neat and tidy table habits are a sign of good breeding. You need to know which food you can reach for and how to eat it politely. All of our food will come on platters, often cut up into bite-sized pieces. No giant leg of mutton for you. Each platter serves four to six people, arranged into what's called a mess. The people you will be sharing this platter with are called your messmates. Whatever food is served within your mess is all you're going to get, and whoever is highest ranking amongst you should be the first to go for it. Mind you, you aren't meant to rifle through your shared plate for the good bits. You take whatever's on your side. If you do find a choice bit of meat, it's only polite to offer it to your messmate. Just pop it onto your spoon and hold it out for them to take. Take food off the platter a piece at a time and pop it directly into your mouth. No piling it onto your trencher. You know your plate is really only there if you'd like to put down your food to continue a conversation or to catch any wayward juices. Don't keep scraps you aren't eating on your trencher, and for the love of God, don't put it back on the communal plate. Find the bowl for waste disposal, called the voider, and put it in that instead. We don't use the word etiquette in this era. Instead, we call it courtesy. We think our manners reflect our upbringing and show respect for God. A lot of the expected manners are the same as we'll find in our era. No elbows on the table, no eating with your mouth full, no belching. Also, you want to make sure to wipe your mouth frequently since we're doing so much sharing. When you drink, make sure to take the cup with two hands. There are some Tudor table habits that we might find slightly off-putting. Discreet spitting seems perfectly acceptable, as is getting out a toothpick and tidying up. What we've just enjoyed is called a feast. A banquet is something quite different. It comes after the main meal and features a light repast of sweets and cheeses. It's almost a separate meal, served in a different room. In our era, we can pop down to the local convenience store and buy a candy bar with the coins we found in our car's cup holder. But in Tudor times, dessert is a very fancy thing. That's because sugar is super expensive. A pound of the stuff would cost a laborer a day's worth of wages. It was introduced to us in the Middle Ages, but it was mostly used as medicine. Women would candy aniseeds and serve them at the end of the meal for good digestion. In the Tudor age, it's still used in tinctures to banish sore throats and coughs, but it's also become a treat to end a meal with. 
but it is very much a luxury. It's considered a status symbol to have an expert confectioner on staff. Remember Henry VIII's fancy lady confectioner? And we aren't just talking about multi-layer cakes here. Confectioners make replicas of buildings out of sugar paste and marzipan. In most households, though, even if they employ a cook, making these treasures is a lady's special task. Since sugar has long been considered a medicine, and we serve as our home's main physic, it only makes sense that all sugar work should fall in our domain. The banquet is meant as the meal's crescendo, a delight for the senses. It's often enjoyed in a separate space called a banquet house, which can take the form of a walled garden or something akin to a pool house. These are often intimate affairs, and ones where the servants are sent away, told to leave the jugs of wine behind them. Even spirits are sometimes served, so these festivities pick up a reputation for getting a bit, shall we say, drunken and amorous. Some writers say that pretty much everything at a banquet is served because it's a known aphrodisiac. Sometimes they're rather overt in their association. Kissing confis are sweets made of sugar paste, and there are also Spanish paps, little mounds of sweetened cream meant to look like tiny, edible breasts. Super subtle. Speaking of amour, who do we spy across the room? Calves looking particularly glorious in his brightly colored hose? At last, it's our time-traveling paramour, Tom Hiddleston. Now I know this banquet is going to be fun. Let's sneak off with him into some dark corner, shall we? But first, let's talk about what other entertainments we tutors might enjoy. For all the hard work we do, of course we're also having fun in Tudor England. We have religious celebrations and harvest festivals that give us a chance to let our hair down. A few of the biggest are Christmas, May Day, and Midsummer's Eve. For 12 days, starting on Christmas Eve, work screeches to a halt to make way for revelry and feasting. The biggest party happens on what's called Twelfth Night, which is the last night of the Christmas festivities. One of the most exciting sweets made on this night is called Twelfth Night Cake. A single dried pea is baked into this spiced fruit and nut cake, and whichever partygoer happens to find it will be crowned the night's Lord of Misrule. This whole idea actually comes from ancient Rome and the midwinter festival of Saturnalia, where everything is turned upside down, roles are reversed, and a slave is given power over his master. The lord in charge sets the games to be played, like blind man's bluff, as well as what's called mumming, which is popular at all the big holidays. These are essentially plays that involve minstrels, dancers, music, you name it. We'll likely take our music outside for some wassailing or caroling. For more everyday merriment, we love a good board game. The upper classes like to play cards, shovelboard, and dominoes. Apparently, Henry VIII is quite fond of them, though he doesn't seem to be very good. In 1530, he lost 450 pounds playing dominoes. What a wastrel! Lots of people like gambling, apparently a few too many. The upper crust also enjoy chess and backgammon, but everyone enjoys games played with dice. Another game, called Port and King, is sort of a cross between croquet and billiards and is played on a green cloth table. 
We tutors are fond of sports in a variety of forms. Some of the noble sporting pursuits involve jousting, something called throwing the sledgehammer, sword fighting, falconry, archery, and fox hunting. There is football, wrestling, and bowls to enjoy in much larger towns and cities. Though, to be honest, women aren't encouraged to participate in any of the above. One thing we'll all enjoy is a bit of dancing. It brings people together across social divides, happening in both public and private spaces, and allows women a chance to cuddle up to her paramour without creating a scandal. Morris dancing is a competitive form, meant as a means of showing off. Picture something akin to an Irish jig, and you'll begin to get the idea. The dancers tie bells to their legs and leap around in impressive displays of physical stamina, displaying their prowess for all the crowd to see. Women sometimes get in on these competitions, too. A guy named John Stowe writes that he saw a dance-off take place between a couple of women in London during Henry VIII's reign. Dancing's popular for court ladies, too. Elizabeth I will be a big fan, and is still dancing with ardent admirers until a year before her death. While movies give us the impression of slow and stately promenading, some of these dances get pretty wild later in the evening. Galliards and voltas are complex and very physical. These are whipped out after the oldies retire for the evening, and the young and wine-fueled take to the floor. If you're looking for more of a spectator activity, there are always blood sports or the theater. Blood sport events are essentially animals fighting each other like unwilling boxers. It's usually a fight to the death. I'm gonna give that two big thumbs down, but it's a sport that will persist in England for a very long time to come. They're often sponsored by a parish and used as a kind of fundraiser. It's an excuse for people to come together and another opportunity to gamble. Cockfighting's particularly popular. Henry VIII has a custom-built cockfighting ring, because of course he does. Bull and bear baiting is also very popular. This involves tying the poor animal to a post and putting some dogs in to fight with it. Some people believe that baiting an animal has a practical purpose, as it's the only true way to get its meat ready to be consumed. I'm not loving it, but it is what it is. Theater performances, though, that I can get behind. For the first half of the era, the ones we're most likely to take in are called mystery plays. These aren't performed by a theater troupe, but by townspeople themselves in public spaces. Organized by local guilds and merchants, they tend to portray scenes from the Bible, meant to inspire us to lead more godly lives. Until later in the century, most theater troupes travel from town to town to give their performances. Mostly, these are a bit amateurish, but by the time we get into the Elizabethan age, theaters have become much more professional and unarguably an art form. The first fixed permanent theater won't appear until 1576. London's Globe Theatre will be built in 1599, and William Shakespeare will make it one of the country's most famous. By 1600, London theatres like the Globe will be able to take up to 3,000 people for one performance, and all sorts of people go. It helps that it's a pretty cheap day out. In some theaters, you can snag a spot for as little as one penny, and there's a demand for good plays that Shakespeare and others like him will take full advantage of. Tudor theaters are typically built in the round, with a stage surrounded by a multi-level circle of bleachers, encasing what's called a yard or pit at its base. 
It's open to the sky, which can mean trouble in foul weather, unless we have the money for one of the nicely covered box seats. But we'll probably be in the yard as so-called groundlings. Because there are no seats here, and the theater wants to get as many paying customers in as possible, we're likely to be packed in like sardines. Food and drink are served here, though, like oranges and gingerbread and ale. But there are no toilets, and because the floor is likely made of sand, ash, or ground-up nutshells, just ready to soak up whatever might drop down upon it, some complain the pit smells something foul. But it's not as bad as it sounds. I can say that with at least some authority, as I've had the privilege of going to the Pop-Up Globe, a traveling reproduction of the Globe Theater, to see Shakespeare as it would have been performed in his day. I went twice, once to sit in a fancy lady box seat, and another to watch Othello from down in the pit. I can honestly say the pit was the better experience. I had to spend the whole play standing up, sure, but I was really close to the stage, and from there I almost felt like a part of the performance. No matter where you sit in a Tudor-era theater, you're bound to have a grand old time. We go to these plays for the laughs and the drama, but we might also take away some fun new words. Elizabethan favorite William Shakespeare is given credit for coining some 1,700 words, though some say it's a lot fewer, and of course, we can't ever know for sure. Still, the Tudor era and its playwrights give us a plethora of words and phrases we still use all the time. In fact, I've used a multitudinous collection of words coined by Shakespeare in this Everyday Life series. Is multitudinous one of them? You bet it is. But there are some that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like accessible, cheap, dawn, employment, fashionable, pious, retirement, and revolting. I'll post a full list of them in the show notes. Now that we've wined, dined, and had some fun in Tudor England, it's time to get ready for bed. But it's only 7.30, I hear you saying. Yeah, well, we don't have enough light to do anything else. Here's Ruth Goodman. There's three forms of lighting in general use in this era. One is what you might expect, the wax candle. Now that is really restricted to churches and rich people. What most people had was the tallow candle, which is any old fat you can get your hands on. Absolutely any old fat. They stink to hell and they often give quite a yellow and smoky light. Even more people than were using the tallow candles were actually using rush lights. To make one of these, we pick the pith out of one of our rushes, coat it in melted fat, and let it harden. The best of them will give a flame for about 20 minutes, um, but you have to keep adjusting it. And again, the flame is quite poor quality light producer. You can't do very much by it. You certainly couldn't do much in a way of sewing or something like that. You wouldn't be able to see well enough. The light isn't good enough to do fine work of any sort, whether you're a glover or a goldsmith or a, you know, that all has to happen in daylight. Not a lot of light was bothered with. Easier just to go to sleep. So let's just stretch out on our rushes and shut our eyes. We need some rest if we're going to be ready for all the work we have to do tomorrow. But wait, what about courtship and marriage? And sex and contraception? What happened in that shadowy corner with Tom Hiddleston? Never you fear. We're going to fully explore all of these various aspects of womanhood in our episodes to come. And we will have a special guide for each of them. The Six Wives of Henry VIII. 
Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it or leave it a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps new listeners find it. Much thanks to Ruth Goodman and Elizabeth Norton for time traveling with us on our journey into the everyday lives of women in Tudor England. You can find links to their work in this episode's show notes, which you'll find at my website, theexploresspodcast.com, as well as a transcript of this entire series, loads of images, suggested reading, and more. I'd like to thank some of my wonderful patrons who really help keep the show going. My newest lady president, Kate B. My adventuresses, Alexis, Anna, Carlos, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Amber, Kelly, Lizzie, Phil, Samantha, Stephanie C., and Stephanie F. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Bethany, Bronwyn, Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Nuria, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tanya. My warrior queens, Lori and Avery. My imperial empresses, Katie and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the two lovely Courtney's and Mary Kay. Patrons get early access to all of my episodes, as well as exclusive bonuses you won't find anywhere else, full interviews with guests, contests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website, or go to Patreon and type in The Explores. You can connect with me over on Instagram at The Explores Podcast. That's my main social media game, at Twitter at The Explores Pod, and Facebook too. The period-appropriate music from this episode comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thanks as always to Mr. Explores for my theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Dan from Naturally RP and Laura Finnegan. Mm-hmm.